This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. The following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today we'll be taking a look at 1988 for the WWF Superstars of Wrestling from June 18th of that year. So we're back in the middle of June for a different year. Two weeks ago, it was 1984, and now we're up to 88, a very interesting time in the World Wrestling Federation as you had a lot of faces that would become very familiar and synonymous with the WWF making their debuts around this time period and also some names that were synonymous from the previous years who would be making their way out shortly after this in 1988, some of whom are actually on this show. Just a few quick plugs before we get going here. You can reach the show and me on Twitter at GF Allentown Pod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash greetings from Allentown, and you can send email in at greetings from Allentown at gmail.com. Been doing a couple different things on Twitter and Facebook, at least starting last weekend. I was sort of taking various show results that I was finding in going through the various years on the history of WWE.com, which is always a great way to kill 10 or 15 minutes just looking through results on there and just searching for inexplicable cards, cards in which this actually happened and people went to it. And it all started with a show Coincidentally enough, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, that I'll get to a little bit later, there's another one from 1986 where the main event appeared to be Bob Orton versus George Steele. And this was a show that was held in Woburn, Massachusetts, the city in which I grew up, in June of 86 at the local youth hockey rink where I was playing youth hockey actually starting later that year. We're talking 1988 here. And there were a lot of familiar faces that you were not seeing on a regular basis at this time. Hulk Hogan was completely off television. Once he defeated Boris Zukov in a match that aired in May but was taped on April 21st, he didn't work again until the Superstars tapings that would air in July. So he was gone for roughly three months partly to film No Holds Barred, but also because his daughter, Brooke, was born on May 5th of that year, so a little time off for him. And you didn't have that. He would take time off from time to time as the champion and would give a little respite. But this is the first time since 1983 that they are dealing without Hulk Hogan as a regular part of the package week to week. Of course, they would work him into something on this show in a very bizarre fashion, in a way where they would have to bend the rules of time and whatever. So I'll I'll talk about that when we get there. 
Also not on this show is Mean Gene Okerlund. And this was something I never really thought about and never really knew until the last few years when I became really interested in wrestling again and this information was more readily available and shared and whatnot. Okerlund would disappear from time to time. He would have these blow-ups with Vince McMahon about, oh, various things, whatever it happened to be. But Gene Okerlund was not seen at all from around April, the late April Saturday Night Main Event, all the way up to SummerSlam. You don't see him on any of the weekly TVs, but you hear him with the what the world is watching, the intro through the Grand Canyon or whatever it is that they're doing that intro the shows in the 1987-88 time frame. So with Gene out of the picture, they had to bring in other guys. Craig George was already there. He was he had been there since 1987. And that is how we got Sean Mooney debuting in May of this year. He's hosting the event centers on this. And it's a very different Sean Mooney than what he would become. He was still trying to find his voice, I guess. But the other thing with Okerlund out of the picture, that's one fewer guy you have to call house shows and you know other TVs, like, for example, WrestleFest, the big show they had in late July at Milwaukee's County Stadium. And there was a whole kind of weird influx of new announcers coming in. You also had Lord Alfred Hayes calling a lot of shows because Gorilla Monsoon had also taken a step back because he had suffered a heart attack early in the year in January, which is the reason why Gorilla is not on the call at the 1988 Royal Rumble. Instead, it's Vince McMahon and Jesse Ventura. So you have Sean Mooney, who's extremely green. He's calling some shows. But they hired Roger Kent, who had actually worked for the WWF briefly in 1984 in the fall. And they brought him back, and it did not work at all. He worked in the late spring, early summer period, working the Madison Square Garden shows in May and June. And I believe he worked a show at the Boston Garden and in Philadelphia at the Spectrum. And you never saw him again. And then Ron, Tro- Rod, Tr- Ron, Rod, I always forget if it's Ron or Rod Trongart. In any event, he shows up late in the year with his voice that is 1.5 times louder than the usual person would talk. And he lasts into 1989, and then you see Tony Schiavone come on the scene and kind of finally take that role, and it settles down for a bit there. But enough about the announcers. Let's go into the ring. And with Hogan out, your top A-show program was the world champion, or the undisputed champion, as they insisted on billing Macho Man Randy Savage at this time, against Ted DiBiase, with Savage always retaining due to botched interference from Virgil, or perhaps they would do a count-out finish, or something to that effect. And there was a variety of B-show programs that were kind of rotating through, including Andre the Giant versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan, which was a very beneficial program for Hacksaw Jim Duggan in terms of elevating him into a guy who could main event a B-show or a C-show down the road. 
Also, you had Jake the Snake Roberts versus Ravishing Rick Rude, a program that's more fondly remembered for some of the moments that happened rather than it being a big money draw at any point in time. Often they would combine the two together and have a tag match with Jake and Duggan as Team UWF or Team Mid-South facing Andre and Rick Rude. Another program of the time was one that honestly was a little too played out with the Honky Tonk Man, still the Intercontinental Champion, facing Brutus the Barber Beefcake. And at a lot of the shows, you had Peggy Sue there. This is Peggy Sue still there as a character, but not Sherry Martell, as Sherry was busy defending the WWF Women's Championship at various shows against Rock and Robin. With Sherry actually wrestling elsewhere, Jimmy Hart would dress up as Peggy Sue, presumably with a lot of assistance in terms of the underneath stuff, I guess. I don't know how they pulled that off. I, I know there's some TV on it, but it's not as readily available now. Maybe the WWE Network will post some of the 1988 Boston Garden shows, since they posted a lot of the 1986 Boston Garden shows on the network just last week. But the Honky Tonk Man, that thing had run its course at this time, and they needed somebody new, and I don't know if they were testing out Brutus Beefcake. Of course, they announced that match for SummerSlam before they wrote Beefcake off with the Ron Bass and the Spurs and the injury angle, and then they turned to the Ultimate Warrior, who was doing something rather interesting around this time period which was facing Bobby the Brain Heenan in weasel suit matches and I always knew of these matches that took place between the warrior and Heenan but I never understood why or what the build to it was because Heenan was not an in-ring competitor and it was an angle just kind of subtly happened on primetime wrestling in June of 1988 and this is in the aftermath of Heenan getting a win at WrestleMania 4 by pinning Coco Beware. And Heenan had pinned Coco at other shows, such as the May show at Madison Square Garden, which would have aired on the MSG Network, but never made it to prime time. So he was feeling really good about himself as an in-ring competitor. And on one of the episodes of prime time that I had watched in researching for this show, he was talking about his open contract. And Gorilla did that thing, of, hey, did you look at the back of that? And he noticed that the Ultimate Warrior's name was on the back of that. And that's what led to those matches and kind of a bizarre interlude in history and perhaps something of a test for the Ultimate Warrior to see if he was over enough to carry the Intercontinental Championship. But also, you had a lot of new faces, as I mentioned, coming in the door. And on this show, we have the Big Boss Man and the Rockers making their first appearances in the WWF. Although, for the Rockers, they did wrestle in 1987, but got immediately fired. So, it pretty much did not count. You had some other debuts going on shortly after this, at the actually at the next taping, which would be June 22nd. You would see the Powers of Pain debut, jumping over from Jim Crockett Promotions in one of the more ridiculous JCP things that happened during that year, which, quite frankly, says a lot. What 
they had wanted the powers of pain to do, and they were embroiled in a feud with the Road Warriors, which was fitting because the powers of pain were much more of a Road Warriors ripoff than Demolition ever was by any standard. And what they wanted to do with the powers of pain and to make give that match a little extra zing was to put them up on scaffolds around the horn and have the powers of pain lose at all these house shows by falling off of scaffolds. Now, can you imagine the warlord and the barbarian taking that bump every single night? And they just said, screw this. They didn't have contracts, so they took off. And not only that, because Jim Crockett Promotions hadn't copyright the name, hadn't trademarked the name, they could go by the powers of pain in the WWF. So it's kind of funny just how that happened. And then immediately Crockett tried to cover themselves by calling Ivan Koloff and the assassin something like the new powers of pain and immediately buried them on television as cowards. But the real story is they were smart dudes for not agreeing to fall from a freaking 15-foot scaffold every night for money that wasn't even going to show up because the promotion was going bankrupt. Also, this same weekend, but not on... WWF superstars, but on Wrestling Challenge, making his debut as an on-screen character was Brother Love, who would be around for nearly three years, and then, of course, make appearances later on. This is, of course, Bruce Pritchard, and his first Brother Love show was rather weird in that there was no guest. It was Bobby Heenan merely introducing him as a good friend and then Brother Love speaking for about two or three minutes, subbing in the word love for whenever you think he was going to say God, because they made sure not to give it any sort of religious connotation to it, although you could definitely tell that it was heavily modeled on the televangelists of the time, such as your Jimmy Swagger, your Pat Robertson, like all those, all those guys were kind of the inspiration for that. But rather than making it about God, they wisely made it a guy who would disingenuously talk about love. And of course, money would equal love as Ted DiBiase would be revealed as his benefactor. The second Brother Love show was much more amusing than the first because... While he doesn't call Ted DiBiase Brother Million, which I, I, I just love when he calls him Brother Million, he does call the bodyguard Brother Virgile, which, <laughs> Virgile, <laughs> that's just great. Now, the boss man, Brother Love, and the Powers of Pain would all make their pay-per-view debuts at this new pay-per-view called SummerSlam that they were going to hold at Madison Square Garden in August of 1988. And this was not being promoted on television in June quite yet. And when you look at it from a modern fan's perspective, you see they held it on a Monday night in late August, and it seems like a bit of a head-scratcher as to why they would do that. But I can tell you why you would put a pay-per-view in that spot. Part of it had to do with some power games that the WWF was trying to run with the pay-per-view providers at that time, trying to lock out all other wrestling shows within a certain time frame before and after they're holding a pay-per-view. I believe it was something along the lines of 60 days before and 21 days after. Maybe I have that flipped. 
but it was going to create a thing where for a three-month period around a WWF pay-per-view, you couldn't have a pay-per-view for Jim Crockett Promotions or any other wrestling promotion for that matter. The AWA would take a stab at it in December, which would fail miserably. But when you dig deeper, the August 29th date, that Monday night, makes a lot of sense. Because they held the show at Madison Square Garden, and often they would hold MSG shows on Saturdays, but also on Monday nights. When Hulk Hogan won the WWF title in January of 1984, that was a Monday night show. Ditto Bob Backlund losing to the Iron Sheik, and they would often have Monday night at Madison Square Garden. In this case, this Monday night made a lot of sense for them because the regular primetime wrestling, which would air on the USA Network on Monday nights, was going to be preempted anyway by the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament, which had been televised by USA Network since 1984. So tennis in the World Wrestling Federation kind of came to that channel at the same time. But this was the biggest event for tennis that was on the USA Network. So the WWF was going to have to take a step aside anyway. And that is how you would have that pay-per-view in that slot because they weren't going to have their weekly TV, so throw on a pay-per-view, make a lot of money that way. And SummerSlam 1988 is maybe not fondly remembered by that many people, but it was the first pay-per-view that I ever purchased and saw live. So I must have thought that superstar Billy Graham on commentary was the norm for pay-per-views. But luckily I had also seen WrestleMania 4 and the hilarity of Jesse Ventura, who of course is hosting the superstars with Vince McMahon. And why don't we just dive right into the show because there is an awful lot to get to. Here are two guys who would not be together forever, as Rick Astley was stating in his number one hit song from that week in 1988. We got the British Bulldogs, who were not long for the WWF, would end up in stampede they would break up and then the angle would be kiboshed by ed whalen who would just kind of edit it out of the tv broadcast because he wasn't really a fan of where they were going with it and since he was running things from the tv production side that is how it was but here the british bulldogs still in the wwf but not really a factor anymore they had had matches with demolition in the spring to kind of i guess establish the demos as the new champions and put them over a little bit but they were kind of falling towards the mid card of the tag team division and they would eventually feud with the fabulous Rougeau brothers which would have consequences that were far-reaching for everybody involved particularly the dynamite kid as he got a comeuppance certainly for his bullying getting knocked out by Jacques Rougeau in his loaded fist of, I don't know if it was brass knucks that he had or a roll of quarters or how the story was, but it's been told so many places, I don't feel the need to repeat it. By the way, they're facing off against Terry Gibbs and Barry Horowitz, so this is a job guy super team they're facing off against here. Now, the Bulldogs, very different from 1985, and the first way you can tell that is They are noticeably a little bit more inflated than they were at that time. They are not junior heavyweights anymore, although they would still have some of that offense incorporated into their matches. 
Uh, Davy Boy particularly looks uh, really huge relative to how he was just three years before, which I did cover in episode 17 of Greetings from Allentown. You can check that out in the archives, along with all the other shows. Just, you know, go back. You can check it out on SoundCloud or iTunes, Apple Music, whatever. We get uh, Davy Boy starts out, but then the offense really begins with the Dynamite Kid snap suplex. And then the broadcast takes a turn there where you get the Howard Finkel read for upcoming events, and I can immediately tell... This was a New England-based copy of the show as talking about an event coming to the Tony Kent Arena down on Cape Cod. And that is not the arena that Vince owned to kind of establish his bona fides as a promoter. That was the Cape Cod Arena. This Tony Kent Arena is actually still around. I believe it's in Dennis, Massachusetts. And I think it's just mainly used for youth hockey and whatnot in the area. So I, I love the little stuff like that. And there's actually more promos for other areas coming up. You had Horowitz with a little bit of offense there. And unfortunately fortunately there, he gets slammed off the top rope. The offense is all on the Dynamite Kid, who at the time, I couldn't tell that he was a guy that was working injured. But the nature of the back injury he had... By continuing to work through it instead of resting and really allowing it to heal, that just accelerated the end of his career. And it was really sad to watch anything that he did really after, say, the end of 1988 because he just didn't have anything left. You get Davy Boy with a chin lock here. I don't know if he's trying to reset here. He did this in the 1985 match too, but that was after a cross-body block botch. So I don't know what happens, but we do get a promo from the Rougeau brothers. And they are in the midst of their very, very subtle heel turn. And it's one of my favorite heel turns of the time period. This is not something where the Islanders turn because Bobby Bobby the Brain Heenan shows up in their corner. The Rougeau's one was so subtle in the way they work it with... We don't want people to confuse us with Dino Bravo, which was certainly nobody wanted to be confused with Dino Bravo in the wrestling world, I'm pretty sure. Like, we we love America, and they're holding the little American flags and talking about that. But they make sure to mention that they want to wish everybody a <laughs> happy... <laughs> this, this, this was in another promo where they wished everybody a happy Memorial Day, and it was on a show that aired on July 4th. That was actually the match against the Killer Bees that fully established them a little bit as heels. But they were setting up the program with the Bulldogs here. What I love about this Rougeau promo is how Raymond completely screws up saying one of the words. And they just kind of leave it in and play off of it beautifully. And then Vince McMahon making fun of them when it cuts back to him and Jesse, and Jesse defending the Rougeaus as just being foreigners. Hi, I'm Jacques, and this is Raymond, and we're the fabulous Rougeau brothers. You know, we are French Canadians, but soon to be American. And if ever we had the honor, the honor, the honor yeah. of getting in the ring with the British Bulldogs, I'm sure the fans would be with us. You know, Raymond, what would be great too is with this new support we're getting from our beautiful fans. How can we not beat the British Bulldogs? I don't know about those guys. The honor? 
The onitor? What's an onitor? Well, you know, they're foreigners, McMahon. I don't hear you criticizing other people when they butcher the English language. You don't hear me criticizing you when you butcher it. Now, wait just a minute. Yeah, criticizing somebody's talking skills when the British Bulldogs are there and in the ring. And out of that group, Matilda is probably the best talker out of Davy Boy Smith, Dynamite Kid, and the Mutt there. And by the way, I've heard stories about what those two guys did to that dog. And that's one of those things that I take great pains to avoid finding out the stuff that may or may not have happened that with Matilda. And then of course, later, Winston was a bulldog that would accompany Davy Boy to the ring in 1991. And I know that dog actually passed by the end of that year. And again, there are some things I just don't want to know. And that is definitely one of them. Terry Gibbs back in. He takes the delayed vertical suplex by Davy Boy. So Davy Boy's specialty was that delayed vertical that would carry into his singles run as Dynamite would do the quick snap suplex. And then we get the power slam by Davy Boy that would eventually become his finisher. And we get the headbutt where Dynamite is lifted by Davy Boy Smith and thrown onto the prone Terry Gibbs and it gets the one two three again I I don't endorse the diving headbutt anymore especially if guys are going to try to do it in a real shoot like manner and it's very hard to probably even do a diving headbutt and have everybody be fully protected because that is the name of the game I do think it's funny how Jesse Ventura was always so outspoken about hating Matilda it would always talk about how ugly Matilda was like apparently heels hate dogs and that was the thing but yet they had Jesse go down during Wrestlemania 3 and he was the one to retrieve the dog from ringside and bring it to the back at the Pontiac Silverdome quickly go to the update desk here and even though it is Gene Oakland's voice introducing it from the pages of the World Wrestling Federation magazine. Here's update. We have Lord Al at the desk here. And he's going to give us an update on injuries to two veteran superstars in the World Wrestling Federation. The first of whom, Rick Martell, was written off due to suffering an injury at the hands of Demolition, who are featured in the latest WWF magazine, and their ability to unleash pain and destruction, to coin a phrase, on their opponents. And with Martell, it was actually at this taping in Oakland, California on June 1st, where Martell suffered the injury, but it would not air until primetime wrestling on Ju- July 11th, where Martell took the demolition decapitation move, but with axe coming off the ring apron rather than off the ropes. So a little bit more of a drop there. And they're saying Martell suffered a concussion, which is an interesting word to hear on WWF television in 1988, to say the least. And Martell, in reality, was taking time off to be with his wife, who was recovering from a surgery. So good reasons, good reasons for him to do that. The main injury they're going to talk about here is that of King Harley Race. And this is really bizarre how they handled this, where he suffers the injury in the March 1988 Saturday Night's Main Event match against Hulk Hogan, where he impales himself on the table, and we get 
a long clip from that match. And this is one of the better Hulk Hogan Saturday Night Main Event matches up to that point. My favorite would probably be the Terry Funk match in January 1986, or at least it aired January of 86. I enjoyed the hell out of that match. There's also a fun one with, I guess, Bundy in late 87 with Andre at ringside and all this all this other stuff. But that it, it was definitely one of the better ones. Well, Harley gets hurt early March, but he works through it all the way up to WrestleMania 4 where he's in the Battle Royal and is one of the last four or five guys in the match. In fact, in retrospect, looking at the results, I feel so bad for Harley Race because we know the injury that he sustained now where he had to have a whole bunch of intestines removed. I don't want to know how many feet it was because I know it's a lot and it sounds really, really gross when you examine it too deeply. This guy was forced into doing jobs for the Ultimate Warrior after he sustained this injury. Like, around the horn. Like, four or five times he's losing to the Ultimate Warrior. Not exactly the safest worker in the world, and this guy has a severe internal injury, and he goes out there. Now, maybe Harley didn't tell anybody the extent of the injury that he suffered. Maybe he hit it. Maybe that's why we are out in June, and we get this, all of a sudden, this abdication angle where Bobby Heenan is giving almost a tear-filled speech talking about it. And, of course, it's something that he's so established as a heel, even though Heenan's in tears. We don't feel any sympathy for him. He's a weasel, and we're glad to see him just feel this way, feel so broken up. And he's saying that King Harley Race has abdicated the throne and that he will find a new king. And this promo is very interesting because it's unlike pretty much every Bobby Heenan promo you hear in WWF. This is the crown that was worn by the king. This is the robe that was worn by the king. The king has advocated his crown and robe. In search of a new king, I am right now. You see, he was injured by that miserable Hulk Hogan in a match in Nashville, Tennessee. He had internal injuries. He spent seven hours in an operating room and an operating table. He's confined now to a hospital bed. I'm going to find a new king. There'll never be a king like this, but I'll find a new king. And this was really weird, how they handled this Harley Race departure in both the short term and in the long term. I'll get to the short term in a second. But in the long term, Harley Race did come back, but not as the king, because of course they would crown Haku shortly after this. That's that's the short term thing. Harley Race returns in the fall, and he comes back as a heel... But he's not managed by Bobby Heenan. He's in the Survivor Series, teaming with Andre, which I kind of really love the fact that Andre, Kurt Henning, and Harley Race are all on the same team at the Survivor Series. For some reason, that just makes me feel good for whatever reason. Harley Race is on the European tour in the fall of 88, the infamous one where Don Morocco and Brian Blair and Junkyard Dog, they all disappeared from view for varying reasons, departed from the company. There's one match here that was from Italy, and it says it was televised, so maybe this is on tape, and I've got to see this match. Akeem and Harley Race defeated B. Brian Blair and the Junkyard Dog when Akeem pinned Blair with a splash after Race tripped Blair from the outside. 
prior to the bout, Race danced with Akeem as they made their entrance to the ring. I've got to see that. I I have to see Harley Race doing the Akeem making fun of Dusty Rhodes dance. And it's not only the weird, oh, he's not in the Heenan family anymore. There's a kind of an odd local thing in Philadelphia where Harley Race browbeats Bobby Heenan before or after a match with Danny Davis. This is something that used to be on YouTube, but it's not there anymore. And Harley Race de facto turns babyface. The only thing is, this isn't really addressed on any of the weekly TV. So Harley Race has a match against Haku for the crown at the Royal Rumble in 1989, which is won by Haku. And they were kind of a heel versus heel thing as Heenan was saying that he would go with whoever won the match between those two guys. And by the way, that that match is it's not a great match by any means, but Haku and Harley Race, I would love to see them in an actual bar fight at their peaks because holy crap, would that really be something? Because Harley, one of the toughest dudes ever, and Haku, his record in shoot interviews and whatnot speaks for itself so you have <laughs> you have Haku he, he's crowned in the short term now the short term on this you have Heenan in tears giving this promo next week on the interview platform the members of the Heenan family are on the interview platform and Bobby has got the, the crown and the cape and he says that he's going to find a new king. And there's only three Heenan family guys. It's Hercules, Rick Rude, and Andre the Giant. It's very tough times. There's no Islanders because Tama had been fired for his general unreliability about a month or two prior to this. And Sivi Afi teaming with Haku as the Islanders just wasn't working out for one reason or another, likely due to Sivi Afi's general suckiness. You had Harley Race, of course, out of the picture. And see, seeing the Heenan family like that kind of makes me wonder why Mr. Perfect, who would come in later in the year as Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning, because they were still going to use his name, why he wasn't put in the Heenan family to begin with, because he seemed like such a natural fit when Heenan took him under his wing in 1990. And also, Henning next to Rick Rude just feels right, too. The two Minnesota guys, childhood friends, this and that kind of stuff. I don't know why that never happened. Instead, we got Red Rooster with Bobby at the end of the year, and that's what we got. But in the short term, they're making it seem like Harley Race is dead because they were doing this really strange thing, and it's very hard to explain this on an audio podcast. It's something that I'll have to post on Twitter and Facebook so you can see the picture of it if you're not familiar with it. When they would talk about Harley Race on the broadcasts, during this time and after the interview they would go back to Vince and Jesse and they would talk about Harley and they would show this little picture in the corner of the screen with Harley Race with the crown on his head with his head is in the clouds as if he is dead and I'm just really confused by all of that it was apparently some sort of joke they were trying here he's not fucking dead and yeah it kind of reminds me of the storyline from the show Veep one of the greatest television shows of all time from HBO. From season five, the first episode, when Selena is giving the State of the Union address and she's almost making reference to the former president who had resigned as if he was dead. 
<laughs> it's just like, Harley Race is not dead here. He's not fucking dead. In fact, not only is he not dead, he would go on to have a pretty decent match with Tommy Rich at the Great American Bash in 1990, winding up his career shortly thereafter, but then becoming a rather successful manager in World Championship Wrestling in the early to mid-1990s. If you want to hear more about that, check out last week's episode of Letters from Center Stage, where Alan and JT discuss in depth Harley Race's managerial career in WCW with Big Van Vader, Lex Luger, and a whole host of others. Promotional consideration paid for by the following... Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of the Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. Place Simulations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimulation.com. And we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event, Lucha Afterground, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlaceMination.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceMination.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wingbar in West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryWrestling.com, and Scott Keats Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceTheNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. If you fast forward through the commercial, shame on you, first of all, because you would have missed the ding 
that I put in there over certain shows. Of course, the Our Vantage Point podcast, a close friend of the Greetings from Allentown podcast. They're kind of like the brother show to my own show. It's like how Kiss is the brother band to the village people. And I'll leave it up to you to decide which one of us is Kiss and which one of us is the village people. Also, Lucha Undead podcast, which you can find on the Place to Be Nation pop feed. Give that whole feed a subscription. I will actually be on the Lucha Undead podcast. I'm not entirely sure the exact moment and second that that will be dropping, but it should be soon, around the time that this show is released, or perhaps a couple of days after. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Right now we have the first of two television debuts on this show with the big boss man, and he is facing off against young, very young, Louis Spicoli. And when I say young, I mean he is under 18 years old. He is a legit 17 years old here. And of course we know this because Spicoli died at the age of 27 in 1998, which puts his birthday in 71. This is 1988. And it kind of makes me wonder how he got onto this show. But when I think 1988 might have still been a little bit of the old era where somebody says they're 18 and they come in, but he had been trained by this guy, Bill Anderson, who had worked as the White Knight in the WWF and was known, so maybe they took his word for it. Spicoli worked as a jobber on a Minnesota taping Earlier in 1988, he had lost to Ron Bass on the previous week's episode of Superstars. He did one job on an AWA taping at the showboat shortly before this. I don't know when that would have aired, but he was a mainstay of WWF television from 88 into 89 and all the way up, really, until he became Rad Radford in 95. But he would do shots in other promotions. He turned up in the NWA World Championship Wrestling on their TV once in 89. He was part of Herb Abrams' UWF, which <laughs> kind of funny there. I guess they did their shows at the Reseda Country Club in that 90 time period, which I know more as a music venue. I think you 2 had a concert there back in 1981 during the boy tour but in, in any event Spicoli is very very young here and he's actually really really good he he knows how to sell for somebody at a really young age and that's why you would trust putting him in there against somebody like the big boss man who is debuting and he made big boss man look really really good here now, they're coming off the segment talking about the injuries to Martell and mainly to King Harley Race. Vince asks Jesse to discuss that a little bit. Ventura goes into it a bit, and then I love his reaction when the camera cuts to the big boss man for the first time. Well, I'll tell you, McMahon, it's a contact sport, it's a violent sport, and guys are going to get hurt. And it's something that you realize when you sign for a match and become a professional wrestler, that the risk of injury is always there. Wow, look at this guy. Look at this fucking guy. And yes, Ray Trailer cut one hell of an imposing figure coming in at this time i love the outfit of the big boss man and the wwf kind of creative whoever was drawing up the outfits for the new characters 
they surely catch a lot of crap for some of the weird wrestle crappy designs that they've come up with over the years and god knows there's been a lot of them but they deserve credit for this big boss man look with the blue shirt the black pants that weird thing that comes diagonally across which is probably to hold everything in place because boss man's shirt would often come apart like the buttons would kind of unbutton and sometimes he'd be all the way down to the navel but it would kind of keep it all together you had the thing that said big boss man you had the little detail on the shoulder with what was then the georgia state flag which had half the confederate flag on there so it was very well done and the character is a really good character as a monster to go up against Hulk Hogan, which would happen in the fall with the attack on the Brother Love show where he handcuffs him to the guardrail and then just wails on him, beats the hell out of him, and becomes a pretty good money-drawing feud all the way up into the spring of 1989. And then they would be background players, the boss man and his partner, Akeem, as part of the Mega Powers breakup at the main event in February of 1989. So there were much bigger things ahead for the big boss man. Of course, inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame posthumously in the last few years. And of course, you see a match between Louis Spicoli and the big boss man, and you just think that these are two guys that we lost way too soon. The boss man passed away in 2004, and Spicoli, of course, in 1998, while still an active wrestler jesse wants to see vince in the boss man cell block down in cobb county georgia which i guess just means that ventura was about six years early of the feds in wanting to see vince put on ice you imagine beat i i wouldn't mind seeing you end up in his cell block mcmahon he'd straighten you out quickly just a minute jess Jesse and Vince are pretty combative on this show. Not quite to the level as I covered in episode 15 back in the archives where that was one of the all-time great weekly TV Jesse and Vince banter shows that I've ever heard because it was around the time of No Holds Barred being released and Jesse was making it an element of his character that he hated Hogan for No Holds Barred and was just really just kind of sort of taking it out on everybody. This was the boss man. There's one other thing I want to address here. Of course, he had come from Jim Crockett Promotions, where he was Big Bubba Rogers for a few years, dating back to 86, as a job guy discovered by Dusty Rhodes from a TV who thought, hmm, maybe we could make him into something based on the fact that he could take Tully Blanchard's slingshot suplex as a man of that size. And what a horrible idea for... Jim Crockett Promotions, who granted they were running out of money early in 88. The I don't know the exact point when the money problems became fully evident. I mean, he shows up for this taping, which took place June 1st, but they should have found a way to keep a big heel who was agile as hell, who could brawl, who could move around who was somebody that you could feed to Lex Luger or Sting down the road if Ray Trailer is there in 1990 as a heel against Sting maybe things turn out a little bit better you have a feud maybe with Luger when Luger's a babyface there were a lot of things that you could have done with him it's 
Very reminiscent of the Minnesota Twins just sort of non-tendering David Ortiz in the winter of 02 and 03 and just letting him go to the Red Sox and just getting nothing in return and not getting the full value out of a player who, well, they didn't draft and develop him because they got him from Seattle. But that, that's a whole other point. I'm, it just makes me kind of think of a situation like that. His move set, you see a lot of the boss man stuff to come. It's not quite as crisp. And that's one of the fun things about watching a debut or the early part of guys in a promotion is to see how they started out and then you can kind of, you know what they became, obviously, because we're years out. So the boot to the face is very, very good, but he gets that spine buster. He doesn't do the spin like Arn Anderson, which gives Arn kind of that plus one over everybody else. The spine buster isn't quite so crisp yet. He he gets him up there, and then kind of it looks a little bit awkward there. He goes for the pin and pulls him up at two, so that fully establishes him here. I do think this was actually the second boss man match on this taping. There was another one that aired on primetime on June 20th, so two days after this, and that that is on the network. I think that one aired first, or that one was taped first because he got virtually no reaction to that one so the way you do it is you tape something and then you have him come back out for the weekly tv show where the fans in attendance actually know who the guy is it's it's kind of a problem with guys making debuts and why you can't really judge a guy by the crowd reaction he's getting upon his debut now, he goes for the boss man slam, the Irish whip, and Spicoli is spectacular at doing this because he gets way up in the air for the boss man slam. A hell of a lot better than Scott Casey would on the June MSG show when they put boss man in there against Gigolo Scott Casey, and who barely got his feet even off the ground. Spicoli just gets way up there like he's taking a top rope bump or something. And that is how he picks up the win. I do like how he would kind of just casually pin the guy. And we get the debut of the post-match gimmick here, which was a brilliant one to build heat for the boss man because it was really for no reason. Ventura saying he's just reading him his rights and getting him to talk and all that. Handcuffs Spicoli to the middle rope, but carefully making sure that Spicoli's arm goes over the top rope so that he can't easily get away. He would have to kind of propel himself over the top rope. And then he just kind of hits him in the gut there, Spicoli with a very nice sell there, and just beats him up a little bit with the nightstick as Slick distracts the referee, just kind of talks to him. I, I enjoy when the managers have to do that, and I always wonder the things that they might say or if they're just pantomiming when... He's keeping the official away from the boss man, just beating the hell out of Spicoli. It's really a great thing, and it's it, Spicoli was the perfect guy to put in there to make him look good, even though he wasn't yet 18 years old. So what a, what an enhancement talent he was. And with the boss man, he, he would get built up with Coco Ware at SummerSlam of that year, and then it would be right to Hogan. So it was a real meteoric rise 
for the big boss man debuting here in the World Wrestling Federation. Mark this date down on your calendar. It's going to be Saturday night, July 2nd, and the WWF looks forward to coming into Lewiston at the Central Maine Youth Center. This will be a WWF fundraiser for the Lewiston-Auburn events. On the card, the Young Stallion, Dangerous Danny Davis, the Mighty Hercules, the Bolsheviks, and many more of your favorite stars in Lewiston, Maine on Saturday night, July 2nd at the Central Maine Youth Center. Boy, what a show that sounds like. Let me let me read off the actual card on July 2nd as is on the history of WWE.com. Ken Patera versus Hercules. There's no results here. It's just the match uh, listing. George Steele versus Danny Davis. Tito Santana and Don Morocco, who is subbing for Rick Martel versus the Bolsheviks, and also included two other matches and Paul Roma and Jim Powers. So thank God Paul Roma and Jim Powers were there. There was another card that drew 620 the next day in Warwick, Rhode Island. B. Brian Blair pinned Iron Mike Sharp. The Conquistadors defeated the Young Stallions. So a nice win for the Conquistadors there. George Steele defeated Danny Davis via countout. Hercules pinned Ken Patera, and the Powers of Pain defeated the Bolsheviks. So that's probably the uh, same matches that you would have seen in Lewiston the night before. Uh, that's a pretty pretty good drive. Not entirely unreasonable from Lewiston, which is up kind of equal to Portland, Maine, down to Warwick. Uh, that's uh, It's not like driving the Stampede territory is what I'm saying. Go to Sean Mooney. He's in the event center. This is very, very early in his run. He's been there about a month. And it took him a little while to find his voice, kind of like me on this show. I, I I think I brought it up to a new listener where I said, it really takes until episode five where I've actually sort of found my voice and this became the show that it would become. I think the exact moment where this show became what it is is when I watched the Jake Roberts promo on that 92 episode of Challenge and realized he was just quoting the U2 song One. And, of course, if I had known more about audio, I would have sunk up the backing track from One to Jake the Snake, but instead I just sort of laid it out the way I did. So, yeah, all that in the archives. I'm promoting the archives quite a bit here. So we get a DiBiase promo. And he's with Virgil, and they are promoting the July 9th show coming up at the Boston Garden. Which, uh, I wouldn't want to go to a Boston Garden show in the summertime, especially in 1988, because that building was 60 years old at that point, opened in 1928, and it had its issues, especially during that time, as the Boston Bruins had an extended playoff run because the Celtics had had playoff runs in the past but the power never went out at a Celtics playoff game the Bruins they had a power failure in game four of the Stanley Cup final against the Edmonton Oilers just about a month before this I think it was around May 20th or so it was about 88 degrees outside in Boston that day the garden had no air conditioning transformer blows the Oilers had just tied the game three to three in the second period and what happened was they couldn't restore power beyond very very dim emergency lighting so they had to call off the game and move game five to Edmonton which is something that even though I know that the Bruins were going to lose that series I still really resent that and I I have a friend who has been a season ticket holder since 1987 he still very much resents the fact that they 
took effectively took away a home game in the Stanley Cup final, although honestly it was due to infrastructure issues and it would take another seven years before the new arena would get built. So yeah, there was no air conditioning in the Boston Garden. So going there for a wrestling event in July, especially one with Hogan not around, might not have been the draw that it seems. And this card only drew 5,000 despite having the Savage DiBiase match and also Jake Roberts versus Rick Rude. So a little bit extra thrown in there. DiBiase's promo is interesting. He says that the stress of being the champion and trying to escape the Million Dollar Man is wearing on Savage and that it's showing. Of course, that is something that would actually happen to Eddie Guerrero years down the road. It would be cited quite a bit that Eddie was actually worn down from the stress of being the champion. The other interesting thing about this is they had not yet established the green screens for these local promos where he would stand in front of the Million Dollar Man logo, you know, like a little tuxedo or whatever it was that they would use for Ted. And instead, they're talking in front of this map of the world thing that they kind of had at WrestleMania 4, but it's not exactly the same thing. Maybe maybe they did truck it in and they just took off the WrestleMania Four part of it, but it is very similar. And whenever there is a map of the world that like that, I like to see if I can actually see the outline of Iceland on there because Iceland is awesome. We get a second promo here, and Mooney actually spoils something here. It's not directed, and it's kind of a spoiler in that we know what happens later on this episode of Superstars, but he says it is a match with new significance. Greg the Hammer Valentine will face The Rock Don Morocco. And when in looking at the results of this garden show, this match between Valentine and Morocco went 15-42, which knowing Morocco in 88, see him going 15-42, my God. But the Hammer actually won the match because it took him 15 minutes to get warmed up. And it only took him 42 seconds after he was fully warmed up to put away Morocco. And he says that 1988 will be his year with the Mouth of the South next to him. I don't know if it was his year really for anything. Because Valentine almost left the promotion in the fall when it looked like they didn't really have anything for him. But he did stick around for whatever reason. Even though, had he jumped to Crockett in September or October and just kind of slotted into the Horsemen where Tully and Arn were. You get Valentine, pair him up with something else. You have that old Valentine flair connection dating to the late 70s. That really would have worked. But honestly, I can't blame Hammer for sticking around because the money was probably better in the WWF and at least you knew you were going to get paid on it. And right after this, we cut to an ad for the Superstar Bars. And this is, this is entirely, this is really strange here. I love the Superstar Bars as a kid, because they would have them on the ice cream truck. But I would always end up with Honky Tonk Man or Animal Steel. Like, I would never get the Hogan or Savage one. And that, that was something that always pissed me off. Like, like how I would always get fruit roll-ups, but I would never get the stop sign fruit roll-up. Like the kid in the commercial And then one time I did get the stop sign, but I traded it to somebody else thinking that, well, clearly I will never get the stop sign, so I'll make a trade. And then the kid opens it up and it's the stop sign. 
Anyway, that's a thing from second or third grade that I just needed to get out there. So we got Steve Lombardi promoting the ice cream bars. And this is not during any sort of Lombardi push. He had the little mini thing at the very early part of 1987 with Paul Roma. And then the Brooklyn Brawler would not come for another few months after this. So this is just a really bizarre interlude here. And now for something completely different. WWF Superstar Ice Cream. Just like it says, Superstar, that's what I am. Steve Lombardi. Lombardi a superstar? I don't know. Well, I have no idea why he wouldn't be a superstar. I mean, after all, Gorilla Monsoon used to tell me all the time that he was the top graduate from the Terry Garvin School of Self-Defense. The episodes that I've done so far taking a look at Bret Hart at a lot of different points in his career. 84, when he was first coming in. 85, as the Hart Foundation was getting going. 87, when he wins the tag team titles with the Anvil. 89, when he gives an interview saying that he wants to win the Continental title from Rick Rude. 91, when he actually holds the Intercontinental title. That's when he found out what the actual name of the belt was. And then in 93 when he's vowing to bring down Yokozuna on Wrestling Challenge during one of those face-to-face segments. Well, here we are in 1988, Brett, and this is <laughs> this, this is a boarded singles push, Brett, which happened more than once. But this is the first one coming out of the WrestleMania IV Battle Royal where he and Bad News Brown were the last two and seemed to have an alliance. And bad news, double-crossed him with the Ghetto Blaster and threw him out the ring and led to the great line by Gorilla Monsoon, don't ever double-cross the Hitman, which it's just so great. I've said this before, but it warrants mentioning again that Bret Hart's first real singles push in the WWF started with him getting screwed and his last singles run at the Survivor Series in 1997, ended with him literally getting screwed. I just love the bookend stuff like that. But this is his face turn here, and it's not necessarily, oh, it happened at this moment. It was a very gradual thing, which they seem to be fond of doing. Uh, I talked earlier about the Rougeos and how they were just kind of gradually becoming heels through annoyance of the fans. Brett became a babyface, I guess, through the bad news double-crossing him, even though he was still nominally a member of the Hart Foundation after that. But he was on the road at this time, facing Bad News Brown, and most of the matches would go to time limit draws, which is kind of a credit to them valuing Bret Hart as a commodity, but the problem is... Brett wouldn't ever actually win any of these matches. Bad News would pick up a win, and Bad News was the guy that they wanted to build up for Savage and Hogan down the road. But the Brett post-WrestleMania 4 kind of arc is sort of funny because Jimmy Hart wasn't there for several of his matches. So Brett was this nominal heel who had a manager, who had a tag team partner, but those guys were never around. 
on the May 21st episode of Superstars, he's about to wrestle his match and he sends Jimmy Hart away as he turns up at ringside very early in the bout, just as it's about to get underway, which is the same thing that happens here. So, And this is four weeks after that. So, again, something very, very gradual. And they're running Bret Hart versus Bad News Brown on house shows. But everybody was sort of at a point where it was acceptable now to cheer Bret Hart. The funny thing is, of course, Anvil, Jim Neidhart, had nothing to do with the angle at WrestleMania 4. In fact, he got pulled out of the Battle Royal by George Steele, who was outside the ring. And he was facing sort of babyface jobbers and in his run on house shows. I think it was like Lanny Poffo and stuff in like opening matches and whatnot. The Anvil actually shows up at ringside to tell Jimmy Hart to get the hell out of there after Brett had pointed towards the back in sending him away. The kind of way that they would get the full heart foundation to turn on Jimmy Hart occurred two nights after this on primetime wrestling. There's a match between the Hart Foundation and the Killer Bees, which is a pretty decent match, and it's about nine or ten minutes or whatever, and what happens is Jimmy Hart botched interference on a pinfall attempt, which leads to the Hart Foundation getting DQ'd, and they're very upset about losing the match via disqualification, and they send him on his way, but they always make a point to say, Jimmy Hart has these guys under contract. And that would lead up to two different things. Number one, at SummerSlam, he would be in the corner of Demolition for the tag team title match. And the megaphone would be the gimmick du jour to help Demolition retain the titles instead of Fuji's cane. And the other part of it would be the Rougeos would be put into a program later in the year with the Hart Foundation with the idea of... Jimmy Hart owns a piece of (laughs) Brett and Anvil's contracts, and he's just giving away a piece of it to Jacques and Raymond, which is kind of a subtle thing that worked a little bit, I guess. And uh, it was effective. It got Brett into a babyface role where he would remain for a good eight, nearly nine years. Brett's opponent here is Jerry Allen, a guy you would see on WWF television quite a bit and also on the house shows. He's on a number of those Boston Garden shows that I alluded to earlier that have been uploaded. And he passed away in 1995. And I would say that maybe his claim to fame is he got the first win over Rick Rude in the WWF on July 9th, 1987 at the Meadowlands with a sunset flip. And... Maybe this is my new thing here, but this Meadowlands card, which drew 54-69, the main event was George Steele over Danny Davis in a cage match, which I <laughs> I don't know about that drawing the crowd there. Allen's not a huge guy, but he, he does a thing where he goes up on the second rope as he's whipped into the corner and wants to do a cross-body block on Brett, and Brett just kind of ducks out of the way there. This is a very brief match here and the thing that I notice is that Brett's offense some of it is familiar but it's a little touch more heelish than it usually is and it's still very methodical it's 
getting closer to the Bret Hart that you would know and love going forward. What I do like is that Jesse Ventura, who has always been a fan of Bret Hart, coming up through the ranks to that point in 1988, he still does endorse Bret. Well, I'll tell you, Hitman Bret Hart, mechanically one of the greatest wrestlers in the world today, and he's a tough guy. I just hope he doesn't go soft on me. Luckily, now they have pills for that sort of thing. Oh, wait, that's not what he meant there. I do like how Jesse... He's always concerned when a heel becomes a babyface about them going soft all of a sudden. He expressed the same concerns about the macho man Randy Savage back in the fall of 1987 as well. Brett picks up the win here with the pile driver. And I've said before, Brett did a very good pile driver. The sharpshooter is absolutely nowhere in sight. It just bothers me how they pretend like he always did it, and he never did it until the 1991 singles run. And I kind of wish that he did, because it would have added something to the tag matches if those guys had a submission hold. I don't remember Brett ever using a submission other than maybe a basic sleeper in any of the Hart Foundation tag matches. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong there, but it would have been something nice for him to add to his repertoire. Go from there to Sean Mooney in the event center, and he's very, very hyped up. We got the Bolsheviks and the British Bulldogs. They'll be facing off at the Boston Garden on July 9th. And yet Mooney, he's just a little bit too excited to be there, I think. Tag team competition. The Bolsheviks, shall we say they are masters of bending the rules, they will be facing the British Bulldogs. Stop yelling at me! Of course, Mooney did get much better at this. I mean, you can't help but get better when you're putting in 16-hour days or whatever it was where they had to do the 90 different events. He covers it in uh, the interview that he did with the Our Vantage Point podcast, and definitely go and seek that out. That was the podcast that I think launched Sean Mooney's podcast career. He's now on with Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a weekly podcast that I think drops on Wednesdays on MLW Radio, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, we have a slick promo, which he's doesn't have the Bolsheviks with him. It's just Slick. So a little strange there. I guess they couldn't get Boris and Nikolai in there to just stand there menacingly. And the Bulldogs have a promo, but I'm not going to play that because, as I said earlier, Matilda was the best talker in the group. And just to prove that Sean Mooney did get better at this and maybe his stuff at this point wasn't so up to par, he, he attempts a very bad joke about the jake roberts rick rude feud that's going on the man from stone mountain georgia perhaps he will return the favor to rude by having damien attempt a roberts awakening who knows right now we have the end of Bam Bam Bigelow's face run in the WWF, at least from a weekly TV perspective, as he's taking on Tom Stone, who, to me, he kind of looks like the white guy who gets into the bar fight with John Candy and Richard Pryor from Brewster's Millions, but I'm pretty sure that that's not him. 
And yeah, this this is pretty much it for Bigelow, weighing in at 393 pounds here, which Jesse says he must be on a diet that he's only 393. But let me tell you something. Bigelow was always billed at 393, okay? I don't like to do a lot of grandstanding on this show, but when it comes to weights and stuff like that, I pointed out how Hogan was announced at 309 which was very strange on the championship wrestling from 1985. Okay, I am declaring myself the chairman of the board of the Department of Weights and Measures of Weekly Wrestling Television, okay? Lord Steven Regal weighs in at 16 stone, 2 pounds, which I guess is a riff for the next time I get to talk about Steven Regal, which hopefully will be very, very soon. Uh, I always remember Tony Atlas on those... Uh, whatever the hell they were called on the WWE Network, the Legends shows. For me, it was Too Much Too Soon. And, of course, it was the name of his book. I think it was Too Much Too Soon for Bam Bam Bigelow as well. He was still very, very new to the business. I think he was less than three years in by 1987-88 when he came in. I often point to the knee injury that he suffered in 1988, which isn't on tape anywhere. It was in a match against Dino Bravo. I think it was about two weeks before WrestleMania 4. But honestly, I, I and he never really and he never really let it heal. And he took off shortly after this because he had a match against Andre the Giant, June 25th MSG show. And the story goes that Andre roughed him up pretty badly, which makes sense with everything that's ever been said about the way Andre feels about other big guys, particularly those who may not have conducted themselves very nicely in the locker room, as has been rumored about Bigelow during his first run when he was a younger man. So yes, he might have been a bit of a dick. But I'm also kind of thinking in terms of Bam Bam and where they could have gone with him if he had stuck around because a big agile babyface, and even though he had a knee injury, he could still move around. He does the cartwheel here. What? Where would they have really gone with him if Bam Bam sticks around into 1989? Of course, the only way he would stick around from the perspective of the WWF is he was in that WrestleMania video game that came out in 1989. And man, would he travel all over the place by the time that game would actually come up. He would go back to Memphis. He'd tag, I think, with Jeff Jarrett in some kind of a one-off down in Continental Wrestling or whatever. And then he would show up in Jim Crockett Promotions towards the end of the year, around the time of the Turner buyout, and then consequently have all these promos cut on him by Ric Flair calling him a fat boy, which is very jarring to hear Ric Flair get go go there with an opponent. I guess he was not too thrilled about maybe jobbing to Bigelow in tag matches on house shows or whatever. And Bigelow is gone from Crockett by very early in 1989. It's just I'm not sure what they really could have done with Bam Bam because you got the big boss man earlier in this show coming in and if you were to turn Bigelow heel, the boss man is in the spot that you probably would have wanted for Bigelow in kind of maybe a, a big man tag team with Akeem, something like that. So there was really nothing for him there. He goes to Crockett. There's really nothing for him there because Flair doesn't like him. Dusty's on the way out. There's all 
the whole place is in flux. And he maybe should have just uh, taken some time off if he had the money to heal it up and heal up his knee and all that. But he does still throw a drop kick here, which, if you know anything about me, I love it when the big guys go up for the drop kicks. But Tom Stone was very aggressive early in the match, and Jesse gives uh, Stone credit for at least going for the win here. Uh, you know, get busy living or get busy dying. And immediately they start the conversation about, this is Vince and Jesse, about who's going to be the new king. And again, we get that Harley Race bubble in the corner of the screen. He's not fucking dead. Jesse suggests himself for the role of king, which Vince isn't quite so sure about. But Jesse, of course, would settle for just being merely a mayor and a governor a few years down the road. So yeah, this is pretty much it for Bam Bam as a commodity in the WWF for about four years, come back in 1992 as a heel. Personally, I am a defender of his babyface run, and I wrote about it on my blog at section309.com if you want to check that out. I did a series, a 10-part series on wrestlers within a given year. I thought that, that that was a good idea. I think the first one I wrote was about Brian Pillman in 1991. It was much shorter. And I think the Bigelow one, which was Bam Bam Bigelow in 1988, I think that was part eight. So you can check it out there on the blog. And, you know, he was just so well-traveled there and I guess didn't make the best impression behind the scenes. But I do think he was plenty over at least at certain moments. I mean, think back to that 1987 Survivor Series when he's going one-on-three against the gang, Bundy, and Andre, and beats gang and Bundy before finally succumbing to Andre, the closer giant. People were going nuts for him then, and he was a viable babyface, but in terms of trying to imagine what he would have done from this point forward with the boss man coming in and all that, I'm not really sure. I've got a question for you. Who's going to be the new king? I have no idea who's going to be the new king. Maybe me. I think I'd make a great king. You? Sure. The new king of the World Wrestling Federation? I think that'd be a great idea, don't you? I don't know if the brain would go along with that one or not. And I'd make you wash my feet. That'd be the first thing I'd do, McMahon. Do you like jobbers? Do you like guys who aren't relevant enough to even be at the television taping? Consider the World Wrestling Federation for your fundraiser. Have a shitty D-level show at your local ice rink. Please write us at P.O. Box 3858, Stamford, Connecticut, 06905. Rick Rude is on the interview platform alongside Bobby the Brain Heenan with Craig DeGeorge. And I do want to say a quick word about Craig DeGeorge, real name Craig Minervini, who does work in the Miami area as a sportscaster and has for quite some time. He's called Florida Panthers games on the radio, and it takes a real pro to call hockey on radio. Let me assure you of that. And he fills in on... Miami Marlins broadcasts when the main guy is away. And he's called all sorts of 
different sports over the years. He's done College World Series. He's done lacrosse. He even did the XFL on TNN. So this would not be his last involvement with Vince McMahon upon his departure. Just a few weeks after this, he, he kind of disappears from television around the time of SummerSlam. Now, Rick Rude, of course, heavily into his program with Jake the Snake Roberts. And Rude starts out by saying, listen, snail breath. And I have never heard snail breath used as an insult before or since. And this is just kind of a rundown of Cheryl Roberts and uh, Jake's wife, who had been on the interview segment the week before. And it's just pretty standard stuff from Rude. We do get a rude awakening for, with a woman who has extremely tall hair. Even by 1988 standards, the hair adds about five inches to the top of her head. It's very, I wouldn't say Marge Simpson-esque because it doesn't just go straight up, but there's a lot of hairspray there. There was a lot of ozone, I think, that went the way of the dodo to make that hair happen. And... Heenan with the come here toots always amused me because, you know, toots is something that has fallen out of the lexicon and probably for good reason. And he lays a big kiss on her and she lays on the platform as Rude gyrates above her, which <laughs> always an interesting visual there. And Jesse, of course, being the number one endorser of Ravishing Rick Rude. You know, I like Rude because Rude reminds me of me goes to George Steele in the back and he has a little doll with him and that of course is mine a doll that was designed to look just like George the Animal Steele I guess with the ball patch on top and all the fur and it was designed because Vince McMahon felt that they could just sell anything to kids no matter how weird or off the wall it was and he was probably right, although Steele's in-ring career was pretty much wound down. And there were not a lot of mind dolls sold. And not a lot exists today. Now, I thought it was stupid at the time. I was nine years old. I was like, why the hell would I want a freaking stuffed doll from George the Animal Steel? who's was just some old guy. Well, stupid me, I should have got one because someone has, is asking a thousand bucks for one on eBay and the last one sold for about 400 bucks. So there. Everyone is already in the ring for the next match. Greg the Hammer Valentine taking on Ricky Ataki. And Ataki is a well-known job guy dating back about a year at this time. He'd be there for quite a bit longer Although he is announced as being from Japan, which I believe was done in order to wake up Dave Meltzer, who was at this taping, per the accounts in the observers at that time. So let's see if 88 is the year for Greg Valentine, as he had promised. As Jimmy Hart, of course, got chased off earlier, and they remark, Jesse and Vince, that he's back there. And Jesse says that, of course, he's going to be back there with Valentine backing him up because Valentine is loyal, which just made me think of how Valentine had gone through a lot of managers. And I had talked about this on a previous show. He had Johnny V with the Dream Team. He had Captain Lou back in 84 for what felt like a really, really weird match. I covered that in episode nine. 
his team with Brutus Beefcake, and he was unceremoniously dumped. And then, of course, Dino Bravo, who he also dumped, but that was probably for good reason. And Valentine just starts right in. Ataki is the kind of guy who really isn't going to get any offense in this kind of setting. Get some big chops in the corner, those Valentine chops. And then Valentine has a very unique vertical suplex where he gets the guy up, but then sort of throws him from the side. It's almost like he's a sidearm pitcher in baseball. And we get the inset promo from Valentine talking about the quote-unquote severe injury that has occurred to his shin. I don't know if I've ever heard of a shin injury to a wrestler. Uh, Perhaps there has been one, but that's the gimmick here, is the shin guard will make the figure four a lot uh, more devastating. He pulls up Ataki after a two count, after one of those hammer elbows, And Jesse says that he's looking for a stronger workout here today. Well, you know, it does, as I said, take him about 10, 15 minutes in order to get warmed up. And then Valentine does it again, pulls him up at a two count just to be a dick. And this is the third time now on the show that a heel has done that. Vince had said that the Rock Don Morocco is next. His match is next, so let's... Keep that in mind. Jesse advises all of us to just enjoy what's going on in front of us. And that's pretty good advice, I guess, for life as a whole. And Valentine turns the shin guard around and applies the figure four. Now, I have to confess, as a kid, you know, we were all very interested in how wrestling worked and all that. And I played soccer, so I had shin guards. So a friend and I, as I recall we decided to see if the shin guard would actually add anything to a figure four in real life. And really, it just ended up exposing the business. And uh, like, no, this is just the same as any other figure four. It's just, you know, whatever. But, you know, you say something has a devastating effect. You put that in the mind of the audience. They see it, and they will respond to that cue. So... Yeah, so gets the figure four, gets the win there, and then just kind of, Jimmy comes into the ring, and he turns the shin guard back around to the front, and then he goes back down and turns it around again, and this is so Valentine can put the figure four on Ataki, who, who, by the way, his tights are the same color as every yellow highlighter you've ever used, it's a very... Kind of bizarre choice, although (laughs) it does make it somewhat memorable here. Now, Morocco, he comes running down to ringside here, and Graham is left in the dust because superstar Graham's walking with a cane. He's well behind. And Morocco runs into the ring and does one of his jumping elbows onto Valentine, which I liked a hell of a lot better than him just going over and punching Valentine or something like that. It was just rather amusing the way that it played out and he knocks valentine out of the ring and starts stalking jimmy hart little 110 pound jimmy hart and morocco gets hart out of the ring and then jimmy hart spits something at morocco you can't really see what it was probably just a piece of gum or whatever jesse says it was a very gutsy move on the part of jimmy hart who goes fleeing to the back and now morocco has got to sprint that aisle once again So we have Graham, he's left in the ring with his cane, helping 
Ricky Ataki, and you can see that with the way they shoot it, Valentine sneaking up behind Graham and leveling him with a clothesline. You can hear the crowd screaming beforehand, which I, I like when you can hear a crowd anticipate something right before it happens, almost like they're trying to scream to warn Graham of what was to come. So he knocks Graham down, starts dropping some elbows, and Vince says, Superstar had a hip operation, and Jesse's like, he's not dropping an elbow on his hip, he's dropping an elbow. (laughs) It was actually kind of fun the way they played that. Now, Graham, he gets put in the figure four here, and he's not a good worker. He was never really a good worker, even in his prime in the late 70s, but he was particularly bad in the 80s. Of course, the Billy Graham Award on Where the Big Boys Play podcast was reserved for the worst worker of the night, and for good reason, after Graham's performances at the Starcades 84 and 85, I think it was. So he's in the figure four. As I said, not a good worker, but this is probably his best work during the time frame of his WWF return because he looks like he is going to die in the figure four. I don't know if anybody has ever died from a figure four leg lock, but superstar Billy Graham looks like he might be the first actual victim of it because he's writhing in pain. He's grabbing an official, and that's something you wouldn't ordinarily see as a guy grab the official and say, please help me or whatever. Now, Morocco, of course, has to run back, which has got to be the hardest Morocco has worked since 1983 because he's just running up and down the aisle and probably got in about 20,000 steps on his Fitbit that day, except for the fact that that didn't exist back then. So there's the added significance that Sean Mooney had referenced earlier before the angle had even aired. And Morocco clears Valentine out of the ring there. And they get out the stretcher for the superstar. And they're kind of mourning, you know, what's going to happen. And Jesse Jesse kind of uh, says something that's funny. Well, one thing nice, you won't have to worry about his pain today. That's Mr. Brightside, Jesse Ventura. So they get the stretcher out for Graham. And I don't think it's the same stretcher that they used for Bruno in 1980. Although it's the same style stretcher with the two sticks it's not very i think 1988 you could have had the thing with the wheels or whatever i mean it was not that long after this that you had sid putting guys on a wheeled stretcher and running them into the ring post which oh god i gotta find some episodes of that just so i can i I just there was a recent pod blast about sid and I know a lot of people will laugh at him, but I suggest you all listen to it because Sid squash matches. Somebody on the show had said I could just watch an entire DVD of Sid squash matches and be happy. And uh, that kind of made me wish for such a thing as well. Anyway, yeah, so Graham gets stretchered out here and the two medical guys, you know, in the white coats, they're actually carrying Graham. And Morocco is sort of in the middle here. Now, if Morocco really wanted to help his friend, he would have taken the job of walking backwards because you want the stronger guy going backwards because, you know, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. I know this from moving furniture from way back when. 
So they have the two guys. They're moving Morocco to the back. And in the aisle, all of a sudden, the guy just falls, which they seem to like to do because they did the same thing with Savage when they took him out after the Cobra thing. They had him, they had the guy fall over, and or they had Savage fall off the stretcher. That seems to be a staple that they liked. Because it would never really happen in real life because, you know, they strapped the guy in. Of course, there was that time when Mark Messier cheap-shotted Mike Madano in, in an NHL game, and they put Madano into the ambulance, and they had him strapped into the stretcher, and Madano actually fell off, but he was strapped in, so he kind of fell on his side. Rather amusing moment. I'll probably link to that in the Twitter footnotes uh, after this show is released. And when they, when they drop Graham, Jesse is really outraged about this. Who is this four-eyed glasses guy they got trying to carry out Billy Graham? Four-eyed glasses guy. I, I love that from Jesse. Now, of course, this would kick off the feud with Valentine and Morocco, which would have been a lot better in 1983, but here we are in 1988, and this was not a good feud. It never quite got off the ground. Now, Valentine clearly still had it as a worker, in the late 80s. He had good matches with Ronnie Garvin after this. We know that he still had it. But the matches with Morocco were some of the most worst, most boring shit. And yeah, I don't like to swear, but I'm leaving him in for this episode because the Valentine-Morocco match from July of 88 at the Philadelphia Spectrum, I think it was, was some of the most boring, I mean... Give me a break. I think it was like 17 minutes long. And Valentine Valentine can do it. But Morocco just did not really care at this point because he was in the light blue trunks phase of his career. I don't think he was crazy about being a baby face. So I don't understand, you know, it, it just did not work with these two guys. And it was probably a reason why Valentine wanted to leave because, you know, you're gonna, I say that 88 is going to be my year and I end up in a feud with Don Morocco who just really doesn't care anymore. But, of course, Valentine would stick around for almost another three years after that, turning babyface in late 90, early 91. Morocco would be out of the company, let go during the infamous fall tour of Europe where a lot of guys disappeared, such as JYD and also Brian Blair. Now, earlier in the show, I had made reference to the Harley race teaming up with Akeem. And yes, it turns out that the match is on YouTube. To peek behind the curtain here, I kind of record this show in sequential order. So the segment where I talked about that was actually yesterday, and I happened upon the match on YouTube. And it's magnificent. And again, I'll, that's probably something I'll put in the footnotes. And at GF Allentown Pod on Twitter, I posted the graphic because they spelled Akeem's name with an H at the beginning of it. And I noted that given my theories about Hakeem Olajuwon and him changing his name and adding the H, that Olajuwon is really going to be pissed off when he sees that. With the Midnight Rockers, Sean and Marty. We love to wrestle. And we love to party. You don't have to work. We're not going to fumble. Because we'll be shaking through the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Oh! 
Those lyrics from the Midnight Rockers for the Wrestle Rock Rumble rap were a complete shoot. Although, truth be told, I think they like their partying much more than their wrestling. Right here, they're taking on Iron Mike Sharp and The Intruder. And this is a big debut coming on the heels of this Don Morocco, Greg Valentine angle. And it's funny because Shawn Michaels would be such a huge part of the promotion all the way up to 2010. So WrestleMania 26, he just got through with WrestleMania 4. So that's a wide swath of time that Sean is going to be in there. Jannetty less so, although he would bounce back and forth like a ping pong ball over time. Of course, it's very well known that the Midnight Rockers, as they were known in the AWA, were brought in in 1987 and immediately got fired because Vince was cracking down on certain attitude issues in the locker room and I guess the Rockers really weren't paying attention to what was going on, so they got shit-canned within 48 hours at a taping in upstate New York there. Now, it's, it's interesting because Vince, the Rockers were always known as tag team specialists, and it takes Vince McMahon approximately 10 seconds to call them tag team specialists. And, you know, of course, they're kind of a spinoff of the Rock and Roll Express, and there are a lot of similarities there. It's almost like this is the northern version of the Rock and Roll Express. While the southern states have the Rock and Rolls, we had the Rockers, although they're in more of a national promotion now, coming from the AWA. Jesse is... uh, (laughs) Jesse's still hung up on the Billy Graham thing. He says that he sent flowers to every hospital in the city. They're in Oakland, so there's probably a lot of medical facilities, as they're quite fond of saying, for Jesse to send flowers to. He said, I did all that, and Vince, what did you do? So if you must know, if you're keeping score at home, Shawn Michaels starts his on-camera WWF career in the ring with Iron Mike Sharp. Of course, he would end it with The Undertaker 22 years later. So be sure to note that down. We get a crisscross very early here, which I find funny because Shawn Michaels is so much faster than Iron Mike Sharp. It's interesting to see that particular spot when one guy is twice as fast as the other. And Shawn gets a crossbody, but the big man Sharp catches him. So Marty, who had gotten a blind tag from Sean on the way by, drop kicks him down. And they're quickly establishing that they're going to be using a lot of double teams here. And we do get an inset promo from the Rockers. And here's what they had to say in their first chance to speak. From Austin to Boston to Maine to Spain, the Rockers are coming and they got one thing in mind. That's right, at the top of the heap is demolition. Everybody's saying they can't be beat. And there's nothing that turns on the Rockers more than being told you can't do something. So everybody look over your shoulders, because here we come. It's nothing that turns you on quite like being told you can't do something. That's what got you fired in the first place last year. I know, you mean something different. You're being told that you can't win the tag titles and you can't beat the demolition who were way outweigh you by about 100 pounds. And... It's kind of interesting that they are putting them in comparison with Demolition 
in their debut match. And it speaks to the high hopes that Vince and the rest of them had for the Rockers. Marnie gets a drop kick on both guys, you know, just drop kick the guy on the apron for no real reason. But Jesse makes a point here about the Rockers and saying, how could you expect the Rockers to take down Demolition when a team that also relies on speed but are also much bigger men in the strike force literally just got destroyed by them? And that was a good point. It positions the Rockers as extreme underdogs. And they did have a match with Demolition at Madison Square Garden in October of 1988. As I recall, that was covered on one of the later episodes of the show Tag Teams Back Again, a show that was on the Pro Wrestling Only feed last year. So you can dig that up. I'm sure that's there somewhere. It's in one of the playlists. So just do a search for Tag Teams Back Again. Whoop, there it is. The Rockers are flying all over the place here. They're kind of like a football team that passes on every down and is just running crossing patterns all over the field. It's like a run-and-shoot offense, which, of course, would have been in vogue at the time in professional football. Jesse wonders, who is the intruder? Because the intruder is under a mask, and it is Jesse Cortez, an enhancement talent, and got that information from Brian Bayless's review of this episode of Superstars from blogofdoom.com. So the finish for the Rockers, and it seemed like that they they tried out a lot of different style finishers. They would do the fist drop, double fist drop, where they would both come off like that. And they tried a couple of other things. Sean lands the fist drop off the top rope, where he goes practically all the way across the ring. So that was very impressive. But then he tags in Marty and kind of he runs the ropes, and Sean gives Marty a hip toss. Onto the intruder, and he picks up the one, two, three that way. So, certainly very different from anything you were seeing in the WWF from any of the tag teams at that time. And to be honest, in thinking about it, it's probably for the best that they didn't come in in 87. I'm sure that had they not gotten fired, had they not had those transgressions, they probably would have ended up in the Young Stallion spot. Now, they probably would have been treated much better than the Young Stallions around Royal Rumble time. They wouldn't have been losing two straight falls to the Islanders in a two-out-of-three fall match on television because Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty are both better than Roma and Powers. And also, it's my understanding that they do not hate each other the same way that Roma, Roma and Powers did. But it was probably the best for them to get another year just out there and just to learn the lesson to not act like dicks i mean clearly Shawn michaels learned his lesson because he would never act like a dick in the locker room ever again <coughs> right but i just i just have to say because sean it, it, it's interesting episode five of this show chronicled the end of the rockers on that episode of the barber shop and it hasn't been as much Shawn Michaels on Greetings from Allentown as, say, Bret the Hitman Hart. And truth, I am a Bret Hart guy. In that whole, you have to pick Bret or you have to pick Shawn, I am going to pick Bret 100 times out of 100. Because, yes, while he takes the business far too seriously, I would rather a guy do that 
than to be one of those guys who is politicking to win titles, but then at the other end, also politicking so that he doesn't have to actually lose lose the title in the ring. Something that would have helped Sean back in the days is these three-way matches where the champion doesn't even have to get pinned. Yeah, Sean, well, you're going to drop the belt, but guess what? You're not even going to get pinned. Of course, the that that would have that would have helped Sean at least lose the title nominally in the ring. Of course, I hate when they do that now. It's Tuesday as I record this, and I just watched Kevin Owens lose the United States title to AJ Styles because AJ Styles spin, pinned Chris Jericho, which just bothers me to no end. And don't even get me started on that WrestleMania 31 business with Seth Rollins cashing in so he can pin Roman Reigns and somehow... That's that's how they that's how you get the rub off Brock Lesnar is that that's how Lesnar is going to lose the title by another person getting pinned. You know, whatever. It's just really making me angry <laughs> the more I think about it. So yeah, I think think it was better timing for the Rockers to be coming in now. Killer Bees are clearing out. The only thing though is I do think I alluded to the Young Stallions versus the Islanders. Those would have been some great matches between the Haku and Toma or Tama Islanders against the Rockers. That's uh, that's something that I wish we could have had, but they just never really overlapped, and them's the breaks. It is true that I have not found what I am looking for, at least for deciding on next week's show. It'll probably be something Jim Crockett Promotions, NWA, WCW, something in that realm. Because I don't like to do too many WWF shows in a row. And I have plans coming up beyond next week for a couple of WWF shows. I can tell you right now that August 10th, that Thursday, that show will be on the second main event that aired on NBC. Not Saturday night's main event, the main event. And this would be the Mega Powers exploding. And it's a one-hour show, but it's only two matches. So that'll be kind of an interesting and a very different feel because I kind of be talking about the same thing during it but of course you know the whole history of the mega powers is quite an intense topic that can dive right into and of course I chose that one for that week because I'm going to Milwaukee that weekend so it makes sense for me for me to do that as the mega powers exploded at the Bradley Center in Milwaukee which was then a brand new arena less than a year old and now the Milwaukee Bucks already have plans to move out of there and into a new arena. And funny enough, in downtown Milwaukee, I guess the Bradley Center will still remain standing, as is the Mecca, the old arena for the Bucks, and the new arena. So all three of them will be side-by-side, side, all homes of the Milwaukee Bucks, and they just keep gradually getting bigger and bigger. So, and after that, I'm planning on doing another Saturday night's main event. So, a the full Saturday show that is actually an hour and a half. And I have not done 
any of those to date. Although when you watch them on the network, they're only about 62 minutes. So it's not that much longer than, say, you know, an episode of Superstars here, which comes in at about 44 minutes. So again, if you have any suggestions of any shows that I should take a look at on YouTube, because obviously the fields are not as uh, ripe as they once were, uh, do contact me on Twitter at GFAllentownPod. Uh, you can post a message on my wall at Facebook. Is that how it works? I, I, I'm, again, I'm very unfamiliar with Facebook. You can also send me an email at greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com. There is no YouTube comment theater this week because there is not much of a YouTube video here. So there you have it. So next week, something to do with WCW or NWA or JCP. So do tune in then next week to an exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. Graham's idol.